Let's pray together. Oh God, how kind you are to us. How good you are to reveal yourself to us. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for revealing yourself to us by the Spirit through your word. Please show us yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me if you have one, or if there's one in front of you, to the book of Philippians. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And we're going to be looking specifically at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Last week, if you were here or if you listened online, in just eight verses, just the first eight verses, we were reminded of the unfailing power of the gospel. We were reminded that for the church, the church then and there in Philippi, and for the church here and now, Truro and Fairfax, that for the church, all we need has already been given to us. All that we need has been secured for us. All that we need is found in nothing more and in nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last week, we dove in first things first. Let's never forget the gospel. Let's never move on from it. Let's never try to add to it. Let's never try to subtract to it. We're from it. We're listening to this letter then from Paul. We're believing that it's true, that we can build a church and build our lives on this. So last week, we heard Paul say that he prayed for the church, but for the sake of time, last week we stopped ourselves short just before we got to the content of what he prayed for the church, what exactly Paul prayed for the church. And so today in verses 9 through 11, that's what we hear, the content of Paul's prayer for the church, what exactly he's praying for. Now, this little aside is important, that this is a prayer for the church. This is a prayer for the corporate body of Christ. It's not a prayer for individuals to listen to individually and apply individually. Yes, of course, all of us individually make up the church, and so we need to listen to this, but this is not a prayer for individuals. This is a prayer for the church to be applied on a corporate level. So I want to give three reasons here right at the beginning for why this prayer is so important for the church, why this prayer matters. And the first reason why this prayer matters for the church is because it shows us what kind of church God wants. You and I have all of our opinions, many opinions, about how the church should be, what the church should be like, how the church should worship, how the church should act. We have many opinions about how the church should be. But however much you and I care about what the church is like, God cares infinitely more. And this shows us what kind of church God wants. The second reason why this prayer is so important for the church is because it shows us what kind of church God will have. This is the kind of church that God will have. When it comes to the church, God is not sitting on the sidelines, passively hoping that the church eventually cleans up its act. God is not twiddling his thumbs, waiting for the church to get its act together. God is actively, actively pursuing the church, working in the church by his spirit so that his church will be like this. And God has the right to make his church the way he wants it to be because, after all, it is his church, not ours. 
So that's the second reason why this prayer matters is it shows us what kind of church God will have. And the third reason why this prayer matters so much is because it shows us here locally what kind of church Truro will be more and more and more. And I say that to you with confidence. And I don't say it, though, with confidence in me. And I don't say it with confidence in you, as wonderful as you all are. I say that to you with confidence in the power of the gospel. Because a church like Truro that is surrendered to Jesus Christ, a church like Truro that doesn't try to control the gospel is a church that more and more and more is built up upon and built up into Christ. So that's why this prayer matters so much. Now, a quick little parenthesis here at the beginning of this sermon and the beginning of this series. You're going to hear a lot about Paul. Paul said this. Paul wrote this. Paul, 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 Paul. Paul would have been the first person to say to us, forget about Paul, okay? It's not about Paul fundamentally. God chose Paul for some reason that only God knows why. God chose Paul as a vessel. God anointed Paul as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and then breathed through him Holy Scripture. If this was just a letter, if Philippians was just a historical letter from a historical guy named Saul of Tarsus, we'd think, well, that's interesting. Uh, it's, good, it's good to know historically. But it wouldn't have any authority over us. This was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. This is authoritative scripture. Paul is communicating the heart of God. So whenever you hear me say, Paul said this or Paul thought that, Paul's the vessel. It doesn't matter what Paul thought. God is communicating his heart through Paul. So that's what we hear today in verses 9 through 11. It's God's heart for his church. It's not Paul's heart. Paul's the vessel of the Holy Spirit breathing out through him the words and the very heart of God. So last week, we were reminded of first things first. And this week, we're still sticking with fundamentals here. Paul is saying to us, don't ever move past the fundamentals. It's all about the fundamentals. So if last week was first things first, this week, we're learning our ABCs. These are the ABCs of what God wants to see and, more importantly, what God will see in his church so the first is the A, letter A, abounding love. Look with me at the first half of verse 9, if you have it open in front of you. Just the first half, up until the comma that our editors have added. Verse 9A, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's the first thing God wants to see in his church, abounding love. More and more, Paul says. This love, though, it's important, is not just a generic, undefined love. Remember who Paul is talking to here. Remember for whom Paul is praying here. Paul is talking to, and he's praying for the church, corporate, body of Christ. God's heart for the church is that our love for one another would abound more and more. But I want to stop myself right here, right now, because I could go wrong here. We could all get off track here, right here, right here. First half of verse 9. Five minutes into this sermon, I can go off track. I've read that Paul prays our love would abound more and more, and it would mess everything up if we forgot the very verse that came right before this one. 
Remember what we just heard in verse 8. If you have it in front of you, let's, let's rewind the tape for a second to verse 8. Let's rewind the tape. For those who don't know what that expression means, by the way, rewind the tape. It's just, um, it's just like an archaic reference to an ancient historical method of reversing footage of some sort. Let's, you can ask us old people about it. Let's re- rewind the tape to verse 8 with me. It's where we left off last week. In the middle of Paul's train of thought, he said in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the way Paul phrased that in the original language and the words he used literally meant that his affection or his love or his yearning and the affection and the love and the yearning that he desired to see reciprocated in the church was located physically inside of Jesus. He's saying, how I yearn for you all with the affection, with the love, with the yearning that is physically located in the body of the person of Jesus Christ. So remember, this is not self-originating love. And that's where we could go wrong to get to verse 9, forgetting about verse 8. This is not self-originating love. It's not a love located within ourselves. It's a love that is actually, physically, really located inside of the heart of Jesus. So remember verse eight. Verse eight is the root of verse nine. And if we cut verse nine off from the root of verse eight, we're in big trouble and we go wrong. Because I can interpret this wrongly and say, God wants us all, Tarot, to do a better job of loving one another. So good luck and God bless. That's what I could say. But verse eight is the root. This is the love of Jesus Christ. This love is located within the heart of Jesus, within his person. And God wants in his church for the love of his son to abound more and more. The love of his son to abound. This is another example of why the gospel matters so much. Because the gospel is not just the the door that gets us in. It's the room. The gospel is not just the foundation upon which the structure then is built. The gospel is also the structure itself. Because if we look at verse 9 on its own, then we're just another organization, you know, receiving some kind of memo from HR saying, try harder to be nice to one another. But if we look at verse 9 through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the gospel that declares the good news of a God who shows his love for us while we were dead in our sins, then we read, it is my prayer that your love, the love of Jesus Christ, boundless love, unmerited love, undeserved love, unending love, love displayed for you and secured for you forever on the cross and love for you sealed by the Holy Spirit, that that love would abound more and more. Not your love, it's not my love, it's Jesus' love. So we've got to learn our ABCs. Paul is saying, if we're going to be the church God intends for us to be. And letter A, first half here, verse 9, is abounding love. The love of Jesus that is abounding here in this church. On Sunday mornings and throughout the week. In our nursery, in our children's ministry downstairs. In our youth group. In our worship ministry. In our choir. Amongst our staff. Amongst our vestry. Our ministry to internationals our community groups, outside, where last week we had Truro churros, and I was so excited about that. It's the love of Jesus that's abounding here, that when anybody at any time interacts in any way with anyone from Truro, they're actually interacting with the love of Jesus Christ himself. 
Abounding love. What else does God want to see in this church? Letter B, biblical thinking. Look with me now at the second half of verse 9 through verse 10. Paul prays that our love would abound more and more, quote, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is a prayer for biblical thinking. But I'm going to stop myself again because it's not the kind of biblical thinking that we might think of which is purely just kind of a heady, academic, intellectual thinking that makes us more and more smart, but less and less enjoyable for anyone else to be around. (laughs) Raise your hand if you know someone like that, by the way. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're sitting next to someone like that this morning. (laughs) I know for all of us, including me, when I say that, Paul is praying for biblical thinking I run the risk of, of raising in our minds immediately a, a picture of, of, of what a person or a church can be like when it's just puffed up with knowledge. So here's another instance in this prayer. And Paul is introducing a new thought, a new aspect for us of, of the heart of God that can't be cut off from what came before. So we've just been reminded God wants our love to abound more and more. And before that, we were reminded that this love is the love of Jesus himself. So now Paul is saying, with this love of Jesus abounding more and more, Paul says, I pray that it abounds, yes, but also with knowledge and discernment, but not so that the church becomes obnoxious or uptight or legalistic, but Paul is saying, I want so much that the gospel, the same gospel that has captured your heart to also be the gospel that captures your mind. And then, having captured your heart and your mind, that gospel would shine its light on your life and your thinking and your decisions. Paul is exhorting the Philippians and us, don't let the gospel stop. Don't try to contain the gospel. I don't think they had this expression back then, but he's saying, ride the gospel wave all the way. He's saying it's like the Energizer Bunny. Let it keep going. And go, I'm using really old, like, 1990s references today. Sorry. Remember last week, in verses 2 and 3, we saw some of what the gospel produces. Grace and peace and joyfulness and prayerfulness and remembrance and, and these things. Now Paul is praying more and more, just let it keep producing. Let the gospel keep producing. Let it produce abounding love, yes, but let it keep going. Let it spread to your mind and to your soul. Think about it this way. For the church and for this church, the gospel not only gives our love its roots, the gospel also gives gives our love its crown. The heart of our love is the heart of Christ. Then the crown of our love is the mind of Christ. So Paul is saying, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you probably have heard some of Paul's famous words from 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter sometimes, you know. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Paul sets that up, though, the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 13 this way. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on about knowledge. He says, if I have prophetic powers and 
understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, he says, I am nothing. So in 1 Corinthians 13, on the one hand, the church is told that knowledge without love is nothing. This morning we get to Philippians 1 and we're told that love without knowledge is nothing. We love but with the mind of Christ, with knowledge and discernment. And I'm not going to apply this to the church because this applies in a million different ways. For the church of Jesus Christ to love with the love of Christ, yes, always and forever, but also for the church to love with the love of Christ, but with the mind of Christ. Paul is saying, you, on the one hand, you can't have knowledge without love. On the other hand, you can't have love without knowledge. And the effect of this then is that we, quote Paul, approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is the power of the gospel. We let it keep doing its work in us and going and going and going. We approve what's excellent. What's interesting, I think, though, here, as a little aside, is what Paul is saying is not that the church so much chooses what's good over bad, even though, yes, of course, that's important. But the way he's saying it here says so that the church chooses what's excellent over what is good. We'll get to that more as we go further into Philippians. So abounding love, biblical thinking, and now let her see Christ-centered living. Paul prays all these things in verses 9 and 10 for the church. And now in verse 11, here's the gospel on the loose again. We are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This in one verse is Christ-centered living. Now if you have a pencil or a pen, I would love for you to circle the four prepositions in that verse. And I have a strange fondness for prepositions, I have to admit, because when I was in seventh grade, my English teacher would make us write our list of prepositions seven times whenever we were a little snarky with her. <laughs> so if you had known me in seventh grade, you would know why I have quite a familiarity with my prepositions. So four prepositions of Christ-centered living. Circle these words in verse 11. With... Of, through, and to. First, with. Thanks to the power of the gospel, Paul says, the church is filled with the fruit. But remember, we were dead. We were lifeless. We were lost. We were rebels without hope. God saves us by his grace, makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he fills us with the fruit. It wasn't there before. We did nothing to grow it. God gave it. I was thinking up this past week in my office, I had these empty bins, these empty airtight bins. And then yesterday, due to a supernatural intervention, going by the name of Catherine Brown, those empty airtight bins are now filled with delicacies from Trader Joe's. Praise God. And it wasn't there before. And I did nothing. I showed up one day and there it was. Dead, lifeless, dormant, lost, filled with the fruit. With the fruit. God has pruned us. God has disciplined us. God has shaken us. Now God is ready to make us fruitful. Amen? With fruit. Second preposition, of. What kind of fruit does he fill us with? With the fruit of righteousness. Basically, this means that if you traced the root 
of the fruit in the church, we would find, tracing its root, that it draws from the river of life himself, from Jesus. This is not genetically engineered fruit. We don't want any of that around here. No fake fruit. We only want organic fruit that draws directly from Jesus himself. Next, through. God wants his church to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We can't hear this enough, church, and I can't preach this enough. Fruitfulness in this church will not come by way of our own striving for it or our own determination or by virtue of our own legacy. Fruitfulness in the church will only come through Jesus Christ. I'll quote an Old Testament prophet for us, Zechariah, who says, not by might nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord. Last preposition, two. And here's where I'm gonna trick you. I have had a surprise up my sleeve the whole sermon, and you never saw it coming. You're not gonna believe this. We've been doing our ABCs. You won't believe it. Here's a D as well, an extra, a D thrown in for you. All of this we've heard that Paul has prayed for in the church is to result in declaring. Verse 11 says this, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Here's our last preposition, the result, to, to the glory and praise of God. He gave us life. He saved us from death. He made us alive together in Christ. He called us as his people. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He has given us fruit. He has given us a purpose. And so as we fulfill that purpose, and as we walk forward in the power of his spirit, using the gifts he gave for his purposes to save his sheep, he gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. D, declaring. So abounding love. Biblical thinking, Christ-centered living, resulting in declaring. Declaring the glory praise of God. I had a conversation with someone this past week who had never been to Truro before, and they came on a random Sunday in September out of the blue. And the two things they said to me were, one, we felt so loved there, and the second thing she said was, when the church started to sing, my husband started to cry. That tells me the gospel is on the loose here. That when a person walks through those doors, they experience the love of Christ and they experience the sound of a people declaring the glory and the praise of God. Now, is there room to grow? Yes, always. (laughs) Will we ever arrive? No, never. That's why Paul prays that it would abound more and more. Always room to grow. So let's remember first things first and let's never forget our ABCs and Ds. The fundamentals of the gospel are forever fundamentally enough. It's enough. I don't know if you've ever heard the the phrase, it's a little leadership axiom that goes like this. Begin with the end in mind. Hear it a lot, leadership books, begin with the end in mind. And I've been thinking about that phrase this week as I've read Paul's prayer. Because again, Paul has such confidence He is filled with such joy and encouragement, even in the face of opposition, even when he's in prison. How? How does he have such joy and confidence? It's because he lived with the end in mind. And the end, Paul knew, is that Jesus is victorious. 
The end is the final victory of Christ. And the end for the church is what Paul wrote at the end of Ephesians 5. Here's what Paul said about the church, the end, where the church is headed. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, here's why, here's why Jesus does all this work in the church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, and he says, or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. That's where the church is headed. So this should challenge and encourage us, I think. And it should especially encourage those among us who have been hurt by the church, who have seen the church at its worst, who have been failed by the church. Because however much you in those moments are rightfully displeased when the church doesn't live up to God's standards, God is even more displeased. And that's why God is pursuing his church And God is purifying his church because God not only shows us here what kind of church he wants, but he shows us here what kind of church he will have. God is not interested in building complicated churches. He's not interested in maintaining comfortable churches. He's interested in building and sustaining and empowering gospel churches. That's what he's up to. So I think this gives us confidence now. It gives us confidence in the now. We have the end in mind. This is where we are headed. It also gives us perspective on the past, though. We can look back on difficult trials, can't we? Difficult seasons in the church. And we can look back on those times with gospel lenses, gospel perspective. And we can say, oh, that's what God was doing. Oh, that's what God was up to. Might not have liked it. It might not have been comfortable. But God has the right to do those things because it's his church. So we have perspective on the past, confidence now, and hope in the future thanks to the rock-solid promise of the gospel that we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? So let's pray together. Why don't you stand before we sing and let's pray. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Father, By the power of the gospel, by the power of your spirit, would you do this in us? Shape and fashion this church into the image of your son. And we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.